0: The peace of the Lord be with you all. Thank you. It's my privilege to stand in front of you this morning as a representative of these missionaries that you've seen on the screen in front of you. And I think it's only right that I echo uh, a sentiment that we all have when we come to Second Pres. And that is that we give thanks to you. And we give thanks to God for your partnership. With joy, we give thanks for your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I cannot express what it means to someone laboring out in the field to have a church like this standing behind them. You Strengthen their arms, you lift them up. That's so valuable, thank you so much. Now our scripture this morning is taken from Romans 15 Paul is giving his missionary itinerary here. But just a word of warning, there's more to this itinerary than meets the eye. There's a story behind the story. And we're going to peer into that story today, Lord willing. So let's read from Romans 15:22 to 33. This is the word of God. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. And Father, it is to you we turn as we hear this word, asking you to make this word alive to us in our hearts by the power of your spirit, that Jesus Christ will be exalted, and we will go forth to serve him and to reflect your love and grace, the gospel that has saved us to a needy world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Does our witness to Christ and to his gospel thrive best when we beat the drum of obedience and duty? Now I'm not asking should we obey? Is this our duty? I'm asking what conditions lead to the thriving of our witness to the world? Is it obedience? Is that the primary motivation? Or could it be that when, as the scripture says, the Spirit pours out the love of God in our hearts, when the grace of God and his adoption, his adopting love for us becomes so large that all of our other loyalties, all of our other affinities are put into proper perspective as we see his grace in a new way, as our hearts live for the gospel of God. Isn't that when our witness to the gospel takes flight? Isn't that when our heart sings? And isn't that when the world most wants to hear from us? You know, evangelicalism started in just those conditions, exactly. The Reformation had taken place and the churches had the truth of the gospel in their hands. But they had become a little bit staid, a little bit fixed, (coughs) a little bit... uh, let's just say sterile. And about a 100 years into that time, the Spirit of God seemed to alight on the churches, both in continental Europe and in England and in the United States. There was a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards who sort of led the revival movement in this part of the world. And you and I flow right out of that stream as Reformed Presbyterians. And he defended that movement of the gospel against criticisms. And then there were the Wesleys and Whitfield in England and they also were active here in the United States. And through their uh, instrumentality, it was the Wesleyan, the Arminian branch of the church that came into this evangelical movement. But then there was also the Hernhut meeting of Germany where a hundred year long prayer meeting was launched and they sent missionaries into all the world. So that brought in the Lutheran stream into this evangelical renewal. And it was that renewal that launched the missions movement into the nations of the world. It was that outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And as historians have looked at it, it's very hard to describe because there were different phenomena and manifestations going on. So they just call it the Great Awakening. They call it the Great Awakening hard to put your finger on it, hard to detail what happened, but that happened and that sent this gospel into all the world. Those are our roots as evangelicals. Now, what on earth does that have to do with Paul's itinerary? (laughs) With the scripture we read, does it have anything on earth to do with it? And actually, I'm going to suggest to you it has everything to do with it, uh, one verse we read there that the Macedonians were pleased to make a contribution. Now, let me just tell you what that says in the original language. It actually says not that they were pleased as though they, you know, they were okay with it or they allowed it to be happen, or somehow they got their arm twisted behind their back and so they decide, okay, we're gonna give to the missions budget. No, what it means is they were delighted and the word for contribution is actually an interesting word. It's the word koinonia. Do you know that New Testament word? It's fellowship. It's very similar to the theme of our conference. It's the word for partnership. Now Paul goes on to say, well, they ought to do this because they've shared in the spiritual thing. So they should share now in the material things as well. But there's a story behind this story in the delight of these Macedonians. Can I read another passage to you? This Paul wrote when he was in Macedonia urging on the believers in Achaia. So he's writing to the Corinthians and he says to them, and now you listen to this and and see if I'm misreading it because maybe I am, but I think this is an awakened church. I think this is a church that's on fire. See if you would agree. Paul says this, and this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and by the will of God to us. Gives you a little context for what it means when it says they were pleased, right? They were begging out of their own misery, out of their own poverty. They gave beyond what they should have given and they gave themselves. That's the joy of the believer when the grace of God looms large in his or her life. Now, think with me, you know the story well of these Philippians, but just let's review it quickly. You remember Paul wanted to go into Bithynia. The spirit of Jesus didn't permit him. And he had a vision of a Macedonian. I guess he could tell it was a Macedonian by the dress or perhaps the, the uh, intonation of the language or whatever, but. This person said, Come across and help us. So they discerned the Spirit was leading them into Macedonia. And that's always true of these awakenings, they're always sovereignly given. And so Paul and Silas, they go and preach in the city at the place of prayer. Lydia, the businesswoman, is the first to receive the gospel. And she insists that Paul and Silas come and stay at her house. So this spirit of generosity already is taking root in the very earliest stages, the first believer actually in Europe. As Paul and his partner are moving through that city, they are preaching the gospel. Along behind them comes a young girl. You remember the story. And she's calling out, these men come from God. They're telling you the way to God. It was true, right? But it was annoying, distracting. And so Paul turns around and he rebukes the evil spirit that indwells this girl. The evil spirit leaves the big men, right, who own this girl because she is a slave girl. Uh huh. They own her. So they drag Paul and Silas into the city center, and as a result, they're arrested, they're put into stocks. And as they're singing praises that night, now think of all of these manifestations, all of these phenomena demonstrate to us that something's going on here. They're singing praises to God through the night in a jail, in a prison cell, and what happens? Well, it can only happen in the Bible and maybe in Hollywood, an earthquake, right? The prison doors are flung open. The jailer is going to take his life because he knows it's going to be taken anyway And Paul says, don't harm yourself, brother. (laughs) And that jailer has that phenomenal question, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And he's saved and he's baptized with his whole household, the second household baptism in Philippi. And the scripture says, great joy came into that house. (laughs) Great joy. So I'm asking you, something was going on among the Macedonians. Something was going on in Philippi. It was a sovereign work of God, and therefore, their mission, their witness to the nations sings. It takes flight. Jonathan Edwards, who I mentioned earlier, he talked about these awakenings that come periodically through history, and he said, it's not a special season of extraordinary religious excitement. You know, that's the way I would think of it something extraordinary. He said, no, it is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit which restores the people of God to normal spiritual life after a period of corporate decline. Now, I wanna ask you something as a fellow evangelical, I'm I'm totally with you, I'm not preaching at you so much as I'm asking myself with you. Do you think it might be time for a new awakening of evangelicals. That gospel word metanoia, you know, it's the word for to repent. And what it really says in some literal fashion is to think or to transcend in our thoughts. Jonathan Edwards says that the church becomes cold when it ab- absorbs the culture and the values of the society around it and repentance is needed, metanoia, our thoughts, which we know in Scripture include our emotions, our heart, and our bodies, our will, and our actions, that we need in a moment of renewal to transcend the current way of thinking. And when that happens, brothers and sisters, our witness begins to hum It begins to work in a way that we can't strategize or plan because the spirit is poured out. People are not just hearing the gospel, they're viscerally feeling the power of the gospel. So my first point to you this morning is that a gospel witness to the world thrives from a white hot center a place where we are on fire and where we have caught that flame we, without even trying, we transmit that to the world. That's what happened in the Great Awakening. That's why the mission movement started. So our witness flows best from a white hot center. But there's more to this passage. the second point is that our gospel witness flourishes in an atmosphere of mutuality Mutuality, sharing, it's that word koinonia, it's partnership, that when that happens, when different people groups are sharing together in the ministry of the gospel, something dynamic takes place. Now, I'm gonna show you that from the passage, but let me just back up a little bit and ask you again about evangelicalism. It seems to me we've fallen on hard times in our society. It seems to me that we're politically aligned And by the way, it wouldn't matter which side of the political spectrum, but the point is we've been identified with a particular kind of political dominance that sort of upholds the American dream and is strongly supportive of American superiority. And we've entered into the culture wars, haven't we? And the way we've done that largely is through legislation and uh, political change. And I'm not saying that's bad, but I am noticing something when I listen to the people outside the walls. And that's what I do as a missionary, at least what I hope to do, what I try to do, is to listen to what people outside are saying and how we look to them And I'm hearing them say things like, well, we know Jesus, but we don't see him in you. Your gospel professes a savior who bore our wounds and carried our sorrows, who became one with us and lifted us up. But what we're seeing, evangelicals, is dominance, is superiority, it's the the standard menu of power play that we see in lobby groups and political interest groups. Now, I realize I'm preaching to the choir. I, I'm really not uh, coming at you or scolding you. I'm, I'm sharing a burden with you and calling you to examine it with me, right? I'm, I'm with you, I'm one of you, and I, I know I'm preaching to the choir, but Sometimes we preach to the choir because it has the most impact. You are the people who are listening. Do you think it's time we begin to listen to our critics? That maybe if they're saying they're not seeing our gospel among us, that maybe we need to examine our methodology. And I can assure you that when I'm overseas and I'm engaging with Muslims, uh, I'm hearing them talk now about atatarruf al-masihi. And it means the Christian extremists. Can you believe it? I mean, we're talking about Muslim extremists. They're talking about Christian extremists. And they're understanding evangelicals as a political power block. Huh? It seems to me something's failing in the communication. Something's going wrong. And I wanna suggest to you that what we find in this passage may have a remedy for us. It really might. And it's that the gospel witness flourishes in an atmosphere of mutuality. Now there are two fronts to this mutuality in this passage. And I'd like us to look just briefly at both of them. One is that Paul fosters a vision of a multi-ethnic church. I mentioned in verse 26, he says he's going to Jerusalem to take the koinonia, he's going to take the partnership of the churches in Asia. And later on, I think in verse 27 or 28, although you don't see it in the English, in the Greek it says he's going to seal the fruit of this partnership. Now, this Apostle Paul, he's he's quite a guy, isn't he? You remember that he's sent out from Antioch, and in Antioch, of course, they had a multicultural leadership team. Uh, just quickly, it was Paul and Barnabas, of course, but it was also Simeon, who was an African. It was also Lucius, who was from Cyrene. Now, that's North Africa. It was also uh, Menaean, who was from an elite. Roman family. He had been raised with Herod. So in this cosmopolitan cosmopolitan city of Antioch, there is this multicultural leadership team. I kind of chuckled to myself because I was asking, how can I explain that to a white American church? And I thought, well, it would be like if we intentionally brought in minorities and people of color to be part of our leadership team. And then I realized, wait a minute, these are all (laughs) these are all people of color. Right? The Antioch leadership, they're all people of color. And Paul is aspiring to take the gospel over to the white pagans in Western Europe. He wants to go to Spain. That's just the reality here. It's the reality is that the gospel churches of the Mediterranean basin were led by a multi-ethnic, multicultural team. Just one more uh, sort of anecdote of that. Do you remember when Peter came up to Antioch? He moved around a lot. And when he was in Antioch, it says that he pulled back from the table fellowship with the the Gentiles, why? Because the Jews had come up from Jerusalem. Now Peter's a good guy, yeah? He's learning the lesson. Remember Cornelius, all of that happened. Peter is learning that this church has to be open and he's the keeper of the keys. He's responsible to open the church to the nations, the people of God. But what happens in Antioch is Peter is taken aback, isn't he? He's got these Judaizers coming up from Jerusalem. He's having good table fellowship as the Gentiles probably enjoy enjoy some non-kosher food. He pulls back. Now what does old Paul do? He confronts him to his face. It's in Galatians 2. And he says to Peter, your behavior is not in step with the gospel. It's not, you know, he's not saying, look, Peter, we need to be inclusive here. No, he's saying, brother, what you've done here denies an essential part of the gospel of Jesus. And that is that the walls are taken down. The family of God has expanded. It's become international, Peter. And Peter received the rebuke. I'm sure he did because there's not a Petrine church and a Pauline church, right? There aren't two denominations coming out of that early church. So it was important as Paul carried the DNA of Antioch, he wants to take the offering, the gift of the first churches in Europe, and he wants to lay it at the feet of the elders in Jerusalem. See, Paul's tenacious. He's holding this line. In some way, he's saying to that Jerusalem church, look, this is a global movement. This is a people for this is a, a new people of God, a people of all nations. And he wants to share with them the joy of that movement. Just to, a story that kind of haunts me from time to time. As I served about 16 years in Egypt, and over time there, I noticed that the church I was involved with was becoming more and more awake to the power of God and to, his, to the presence of his spirit in ministry, the reality that God is with us. And a, a wonderful prayer meeting sort of erupted in that church. At least to me, it looked like it had erupted. And these Egyptians were gathered in a building, not this large, but close. And they were spending two hours every Monday night lifting their hands and pleading with God for an outpouring of his spirit on their land. And I thought, this is really something special. And I asked my Egyptian friends, the staff on that church actually, I said, how did this happen? How did this come about? And he said to me, you know, Mike, we, uh, we realized we were dying. Our church was hemorrhaging, hemorrhaging people, especially young people. And we knew we needed to be revived. We needed new life. And they said, we began to look around And see if anyone could teach us about prayer. Long story short, they called in a Korean ministry to teach prayer. And uh, it helped things for a little while, but they kind of reverted to the status quo. The Korean style didn't take with the Egyptians, but you know what they did? They kept after it. And they heard that there was an outpouring of God's spirit in Uganda. And they went down, they visited Uganda, and they met some of the leaders there and they said, brothers, come and help us. We need to be revived in Egypt. And the Ugandan brothers came up and taught prayer in Egypt. And that prayer meeting that I've mentioned was the fruit of that Ugandan prayer movement. Now, why do I tell you that? Because I've also served as a pastor in the United States. And that story haunts me a little bit, you know, because I feel some of the same things that those Egyptian pastors felt. The church is losing people. It's losing its battles. It's hemorrhaging. And though we dress up pretty good on the outside, the truth is we need, we need the fresh outpouring of God's Spirit. Now, Paul was riding the crest of that wave the tsunami of the outpouring of the Spirit in Pentecost as he traveled around the Mediterranean basin planting churches. And I wanna say to you, he made it his priority to function in a multi-ethnic world. He made it his priority to the extent, see we think of Paul as, you know, he's a rabid gospel preacher. He's gonna take the gospel to Spain But in this passage we read, he's got another priority. He wants to go to the church in Jerusalem and seal the fruit of the partnership. And then, then he wants to do another thing, pass through Rome. So the gospel witness flourishes in this mutuality of ethnicities, of cultures, of language. And I know you are people who love to send and you love to give. But I want to say to you today that it's okay to receive too, (laughs) to receive back from the global church what they have to give. Then there's just one last point I want to make from this passage, and that is that Paul worked on a multi-ethnic team. He did that very intentionally. It's not listed in our passage but when you follow Paul through the book of Acts you come to Acts 20 and that is right at the point when Paul is sending this epistle to the Romans and to our great good fortune Luke tells us exactly who is on Paul's team and it is Sopater and Aristarchus and Secundus they're from Macedonia they're the Philippians or perhaps Thessalonicans there's Gaius and Timothy and they're from South Galatia There's Tychicus, and there's Trophimus, and they're from Asia, Ephesus perhaps. And then we also know that there's Phoebe, who was dispatched with this epistle to the Romans. She carried the the epistle to Rome. And there's also Dr. Luke. We think he was a Gentile as well. Now, I don't know if Paul took all nine or seven of these people back with him to Jerusalem. The scripture is not explicit about that but wouldn't that made a great missions conference? And wouldn't that put an exclamation point on Paul's teaching that the gospel breaks down the walls of enmity, that because of the gospel, we live in unity of the fellowship of the body of Christ. I'll just close with this story that happened in Lebanon Some of you will know I was a teacher there at a theological seminary, and my students came from all over the Arab world. They would have looked a lot like Paul's team, except they were from the South Mediterranean, from North Africa and from the Middle East. And at the same time I was there, simultaneously, there was a huge influx of Syrian refugees that flowed into the country. And it was the most fruitful time of ministry I've ever seen, not my personal ministry, but we were seeing Sunni Syrian Muslims come into the churches and be absorbed into the worship of the small evangelical churches of Beirut. They were filling up our churches and some of the wise leadership in the Lebanese church says, what are, said, what are we gonna do? And we got onto the strategy of starting small group Bible studies and the Syrians, Muslims mind you, <laughs> said, we'll open our homes come into our homes and lead the Bible studies there. And that's exactly what we did is these Syrian refugees living in shanty towns and uh, extended families in very small apartments, we would go in and lead the Bible studies. And of course I wanted to do that, you know, missionary dude, I wanted to be part of that, sign me up. I wanna lead a study, but I didn't get signed up. So who did get signed up to lead those studies? Well, some of my students. And I would tag along with them. And I remember one Egyptian student who went into an apartment and led that study and opened the word of God to these brothers and sisters and had them tell the story back to him in their own language. And then they agreed together that they would share that story with some of their neighbors and friends as they went out into the community. And I thought, my, my, it's so good I'm not leading that school that study. You know, if I had stepped into that circle and if I had begun to lead that study, I would have brought all of my Americanness right into it. And those Syrians, I'm sure you know, there's a fair bit of anti-American sentiment already in the Middle East, but they would have seen me as a rich and wealthy American and they would have probably looked at me as a source for financial help. They might have misunderstood that I could help them get a visa but this brother spoke to them right out of his own world, which was very similar to theirs. And in that uh, multicultural setting, the gospel lived. And it penetrated the hearts of these Syrian brothers and sisters. Now, I had a role there, but my role was as the mentor of the young Egyptian guy his role was to be at the grassroots, to be on the cutting edge. And I know that as you're listening to your missionaries this week, you're hearing that. I've, I heard the, one of the young ladies from Jakarta say that, yeah, there are two of us there, or three, and they said, she said, we're the only foreigners on the team. We're working in a Indonesian team ministering. Brothers and sisters, going forward in this 21st century, our witness to the gospel will be much more of that, much more mutual, shared ministry, the koinonia, the partnership of the gospel. And one last thought is that your missionaries, just like Paul carried the DNA of Antioch, they carry your DNA. And if that mutuality is happening here, If the walls of animosity and superiority are broken down, then they will carry that most naturally to the world because they won't be better than you. They carry your DNA. So I know you're walking that path. Let me commend you and let me plead with you, keep going. It's not easy, but it's the way of the gospel. Let us pray. Father, we turn our hearts to you. Your word is rich. It challenges us, Lord, in ways we sometimes don't expect. But Father, by the grace of God, change our hearts that we would see ourselves not as dominant but as servants, not as expressing pity to the world but as expressing empathy of incarnating the glorious gospel of Jesus to the needy nations of the world and allowing them, Father, by the power of your spirit, to echo back to us, to feed back to us that same gospel which has gone out from here so faithfully. We pray in the name of Jesus, amen.